This morning, I'm going to share with you out of the book of Acts, <clears throat> chapter 3. I love the book of Acts. It's written by Luke, and it tells us the actions of the apostles as it pertains to the planting, the development, the growth, and the expansion of the New Testament church. The first one-third of the book of Acts focuses mostly on the life of the apostle Peter. The last two-thirds of the book of Acts focuses mostly on the life of the Apostle Paul. And in doing so, it helps us understand how the church was formed, how it developed, the persecution it went under, and the many signs, wonders, and miracles that God did by his own spirit showing himself strong and validating the witness of the early church. This morning, we're going to be in Acts 3, and it's a story of an encounter that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John have as they are walking to daily prayer. And I believe that hidden within Acts 3 are some principles that if you had an ear to hear or eyes to see that by God's spirit, you could apply to your own life and your own family even today. Starting in Acts 3 and in verse 1, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says this, now Peter and John, they went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, watch, which was three in the afternoon. This story here in Acts 3, it is directly following the outpouring of the Holy Ghost in Acts 2. Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church. 3,000 people right in the middle of Jerusalem are saved. Signs, wonders, and miracles are breaking out all around them. People are selling everything they have and laying it at the apostles' feet. And friend, this is the moment all of creation has been waiting for. God's Spirit wouldn't just rest on people for a limited time or activity, but instead the Spirit of God would take residence in our hearts by faith, and we, in fact, would be endued with power from on high. And watch the behavior of Peter and John following this incredible moment. They go to the temple at the hour of prayer to engage in the ordinary discipline of spiritual communication with God in order to fuel the extraordinary advancement of God's kingdom. Now watch why this is interesting. There was no medals for showing up for afternoon prayer in the temple. This wasn't as exciting as their last prayer meeting that literally shook the city. There was no recorded manifestations of fire and wind. There was no greeter at the temple door holding a sign that said, welcome home. There wasn't coffee in the lobby or ushers at the altar. It was just regular old daily prayer at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It was not sexy. It was not cool. It was not advertised, but it was a spiritual necessity in the life of the early church. Now watch. If we want the outpouring of God's spirit to continue in this region, we must marry the passion and exuberance of our worship to the discipline of our ordinary routines. And in doing so, we will see the expansion of his church all across this nation. I love this about the pattern of Jesus. He would have the most wild miracles in front of the masses. He would feed them, heal them, deliver them, teach them, perform signs and wonders, and he ends almost every event the same way, by going to the mountain to be alone with the Father. 
almost as if to say, my supernatural moments in public are the result of my super ordinary moments in private. In fact, even the disciples noticed this out of all the things that they could have asked Jesus to teach them. In Luke 11, they say, teach us to pray. I so solemnly believe for your life and for mine, the difference between success and failure does not come down to our level of passion, but instead our level of discipline. And in fact, this is what it means to be a disciple. Watch, one who is disciplined into the ways of following Jesus on a daily basis. Oh, this following Jesus stuff sounds great until you realize the vast majority of your Christian life is filled with ordinary habits and practices that will never make the highlight real but they produce in you the necessary spiritual fruit and resilience to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Do you know that trees don't grow in moments of passion? They grow as a result of being planted in the soil, being fed nutrients through their root system and outlasting the ever-changing seasons around them. Do you know that marriages don't ultimately grow in moments of passion? They grow as a result of being planted in covenant, fed nutrients through daily interactions and outlasting the storms around them. Sometimes I get asked this question, where did the passion go for my faith? Where did the passion go for my spouse? Where did the passion go for my family? Friend, it went the same direction as your disciplines. Find your disciplines and you will rediscover your passions. Now, some of y'all cheered louder for an 18-inning game where we couldn't score one run than you do for Jesus on Sunday morning. But, but I just... Next time I go late on a Sunday morning, I, I ain't apologizing for going late. I'm just saying we're in extra innings. That game was six and a half hours. Y'all weren't praying hard enough. We still lost. When I was on Daystar a few weeks ago, they asked me, what's the secret plan to reach Seattle? What's the program? Who's the special speaker? I said, you're looking at them. They said, what's the special event? I told them this. We're going to hold church every Sunday. We're going to do pursuit nights every other Monday. We're going to have a prayer meeting every Wednesday. We're going to have worship practice every Thursday. We are going to continue to strike the ground with our holy habits, our sanctified schedules, and our everyday intentionality until the region resonates with the glory of God. We are going to outlast the devil because we have something he doesn't. The willingness to marry the passion of our worship to the obedience of our disciplines. See, it seems like we got two types of Christians today. Passion without discipline or discipline without passion. And friend, both are inherently dangerous and wrong. If you got passion without discipline, you're like the seed that falls on shallow soil. It might sprout up quickly, but the cares of life choke it out. But if you got discipline without passion, you're like the rich young ruler who followed all the laws of Moses since he was a young boy, but he couldn't find it within himself to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. 
Oh, I'm excited for our Easter event in the stadium in downtown Everett. I love big old worship events in the field. I can't wait for the grand opening in Seattle. But friend, these events only serve as another invitation into the daily ordinary discipline of following Jesus. It was John Wimber, founder of the Vineyard Movement, who said it like this. Many of us treat church like immature adolescents. From other Christians, we want thrills, constant exhilaration, and to have our needs met. But when Christian brothers and sisters fall short of our expectation, when they are boring or imperfect and fail to meet our needs, we pout, we turn away, and we isolate ourselves from them. You know, what I've found to be true about life is that passion follows discipline. When am I going to get my passion back? When the discipline of your life stays consistent. Now watch what happens in verse 2. The Bible says there was a certain man lame from his mother's womb. He was carried and laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. The reason he's there is to ask alms from those who entered the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for alms. Now, from my reading, there are at least three categories of giving talked about in the New Testament. The first is the tithe. The second is the offering. The third is almsgiving. Now watch, the tithe belongs to God, and it's given to your local church. The offering belongs to God, and is given as a free will gift above and beyond your normal tithe. The alms belong to God, and are directed to the poor, the needy, and the less fortunate around you. I hope you're seeing the pattern. It doesn't belong to us, it belongs to Him. These are three buckets of obedience that are to become a normal part of a Christian's financial life. I have practiced the financial discipline of tithing since I had my very first job delivering newspapers for the Ballard News Tribune. I made $86 a month. The money was paid to me, but it wasn't really mine because I am a steward of resources, because my supply doesn't come from man, it comes from God. As a steward, watch, I am not making decisions about my money, I am making decisions about God's money, which means tithing is not me giving God 10% of my money. Tithing is God letting me keep 90% of his. I don't have to pray about whether I should tithe. I don't debate about whether I should tithe. I don't wait until I feel passionate to tithe. Without fail, 10% of what God gives me, I give back to him without even blinking. And as a result, I live a blessed life. Let me tell you why I tithe. Number one, it provides for God's house. Number two, it tells God that I trust him. Number three, it creates margin in my life for God to fill. Four, it reminds me that I am not my source. Five, it connects my money to a kingdom purpose. Six, it gives my job eternal significance. Seven, it transforms my money into a seed. Eight, it breaks greed off of my heart. Nine, it lets everything else in my life know that God is first. Friend, for us, tithing isn't an act of generosity. It's an act of obedience. Now watch, the offering is different. The offering is above and beyond. It's a gift made to support a special cause or initiative. For example, our Heart for Pursuit offering we took a number of months ago. 
The third type of giving is what is more addressed in specificity in Acts 3. It was almsgiving. These were donations and acts of service done for those who were, watch, truly poor and disenfranchised in society. How many of you know this morning there's a difference between unable to work and unwilling to work? Those who are truly in need would sit by the gates and ask for alms to buy bread. I want you to see, friend, what is happening in this story. Peter and John are simply on their way to ordinary prayer. They are simply passing by a beggar who is always sitting by the same gate begging for the same bread. Peter and John happen to not have any extra alms in this moment to assist this man with his need. But it was the normal engagement with the ordinary and routine spiritual disciplines of life that created an opportunity for miraculous and supernatural events to unfold. Yeah, I don't believe in coincidences. But the more I pray, the more coincidences I have. It was just a normal conversation, and then God showed up. It was just a normal walk in the city, and then God showed me a vision. It was just a regular Sunday, a normal practice, an everyday routine. But right in the middle of my normal obedience, God showed up and did something spectacular. Friend, we don't chase miracles. They chase us. If I'll just be faithful to grow where I'm planted, watch the supernatural things that I will attract. We were faithful in Snohomish, and look what the Lord has done. I want you to see the dichotomy of this story. A man who has been lame from birth is sitting by the most expensive and opulent gate in all of Israel. Josephus, who was the first century Jewish historian, said that the gate called Beautiful was 75 feet tall and 60 feet wide. It led to the temple where Yahweh himself was worshipped. But the steps that led up to that gate, they were littered with those who were not allowed in the temple. The diseased, the lame, and the unclean. Peter and John have likely walked by that same lame man hundreds of times before. But this time it was different. Watch. It was the same gate, the same walk, the same hour, the same city, the same temple, the same beggar. But this time it was different. This time Peter and John had been filled with the Holy Ghost. This time Peter and John were walking in miracle working power. This time Peter and John were operating with an awareness that caused them to bring heaven to earth. And friend, when the Holy Spirit fills your life, you'll be sitting in that same classroom, working at that same job, living in that same house, walking to that same restaurant, married to that same person, but this time it will be different, not because God got rid of all your routines, but because the Spirit of God now fills your life in order to animate the ordinary. And a vast majority of your Christian life will never, ever make the highlight real. And that's why it's so dangerous for you to compare your lowlights to somebody else's highlights. It's so easy in our social media generation to look at how other people are living and think that that is their 24-7 reality. But the truth of the matter is, is people don't put their ordinary moments online. They put their extraordinary moments online. 
I don't wake up in the morning and take a picture of myself crawling out of bed and post it on Instagram. No, it's when I travel to Jerusalem, when I'm preaching at that conference, when I go see that spectacular site. No, those are the moments that we all like to see and share. But if we're not careful, we will develop an appetite that only honors the spectacular and misses out on a God who wants to invade the ordinary. It is when you honor the ordinary that you see the heaven, kingdom of heaven invade earth in transformative ways. A vast majority of your Christian life is filled with ordinary. A vast majority of your married life, it is filled with ordinary. And until you learn to honor the ordinary, you will chase what looks like significance all your life and miss out on what is already under your nose. Now watch what happens in verse 4. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention. Watch expecting to receive. Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. Now in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I want you to notice something important here in this story. Peter gives a command prior to the miracle taking place, and the command sounded like this. Look at us. And watch the response. When the man gave them his attention, he was expecting to receive. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 9. According to your faith, let it be done unto you. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 15. Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Jesus says it like this in Mark 11. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Jesus says it like this in Mark 10. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. I don't even ask people anymore, what do you have faith for? Because it's a spiritual question. And oftentimes we use these undefined terms that create more confusion than they do clarity. Today I ask people it this way. What are you expecting? What are you expecting when you come to church? What are you expecting when you come forward for prayer? What are you expecting when you sign up to serve because your level of expectation tells me everything I need to know about the nature of your faith. See, my level of faith can't compensate for somebody else's level or lack thereof of expectation. Prayer works because we partner in faith. Miracles happen because we partner in expectation. See, expectation shapes my attitude. Expectation, it establishes my emotions. Expectation, it prepares my mindset. This man is sitting by this gate and he repeats the same mantra probably a thousand times a day. Alms for the poor. But when Peter says, look, this man shifts his gaze. He shifts his body, he shifts his focus, and he prepares himself to receive. I wonder, I just wonder, if the lack of miracles in the Western church today has a lot to do with a God who is saying, look, but a people who refuse to engage because they will not posture themselves in expectation. So often, 
our theology boils down to this statement. I'll believe it when I see it. And yet the kingdom of God is the absolute opposite. You will see it when you believe it. I was playing catch with my eight-year-old in the backyard a few weeks ago. I had a glove. He had a glove. We were throwing the baseball back and forth. And I was getting ready to throw it to him the first time. And he's just kind of standing there with his arms at his side looking at me. I said, Matthew, get ready. Dad about to throw the baseball. He said, I am ready. I said, you don't look ready. He goes, but I am ready. And I told him, I said, well, I'm going to release this baseball with an incredible amount of velocity. And by the time that it is traveling towards you, you will not have time to get ready. So you've got to posture yourself in expectation because once this is released, you've got to be able to, to, to catch it. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, you're standing there looking like this. You're ready in theory, but you're not ready in truth. You've got to posture yourself. You've got to bend your knees a little bit. You got to keep your eye on the ball. You, you got to take that mid and hold it where you think that ball is, is, is headed. Why? Because expectation looks like something. Oh, it's got some parallels for our life today. Well, I'm at church. I guess if God wants to do it, he'll just do it. I believe it when I see it, but I probably won't ever see it. And that's true. That is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You probably won't ever see it if that's your theological mantra that you subscribe to. No, we are people who worship the invisible God who is expanding an invisible kingdom and it is all around, but it is available to those who believe. And so that's why we say, let it be unto us according to your word. That's why Jesus says, let it be done unto you according to your faith. What are you believing for this morning? What are you expecting to receive from God? Because if you came to church expecting to hear a bad sermon, it doesn't matter how well I preach you will receive in accordance with what you had faith for. It's amazing to me. We could put two Christians in the exact same environment and one leaves with their joy full and the other leaves with their depression doubled down. How could that be true? Because you receive in accordance with your expectation. And expectation looks like something. I love the title that Peter uses in verse 6. He says this, watch, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now Bethlehem was where Jesus was born, but Nazareth was where he was raised. Do you know that Nazareth at its height, Nazareth at its height was a bustling metropolis of only 400 people. The city spread out over maybe 10 acres. It was populated by a bunch of farmers who were related to each other. There was literally nothing attractive or cool about being from, from Nazareth. John 1. 
Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael replied to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. And I love what Peter does here in Acts 3. In the name of Jesus, the Jewish carpenter from an unimportant village, the Savior from an unimpressive family, the Messiah from an unremarkable tribe, in the name of this Jesus from tiny old Nazareth, I say to you, rise up and walk. Listen, friend, you don't have to be from a remarkable place in order to live a remarkable life. God is still in the business of using small cities and normal people to accomplish incredible things for the kingdom of God. No, my past isn't a limitation for God. It's actually a manifestation of God's goodness to take the foolish things of the world and confound the wise. Nazareth is no different than us today. And if you allow the unbelief of others to cause you to miss out on the sacredness of what God is doing where you're at, you will sit on the sidelines of your faith while ignoring the invitation to be involved with the game. Are you from a Nazareth family? Good. God can use you to change the world. Are you working a Nazareth job? Good. God can use it to provide for your family. Are you living in a Nazareth city? Good. Just watch what God can do in places that other people overlook. Verse 7, here's where the story concludes. And Peter took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Just for a moment, could you sympathize with the utter chaos of this scene? Everyone knows this man was the beggar. He looked like the beggar. He smelled like the beggar. He sounded like the beggar. But now he is walking, leaping, and praising like a man who has just encountered the power of a living God. You know, sometimes I walk, and sometimes I leap, and, and sometimes we praise. Because, friend, you and I were the beggar, lame from birth because of sin, but Jesus of Nazareth came walking by and our lives have never been the same. And that's why I could never judge the way somebody else worshiped. That's why I could never sit in the seat of the mocker as it pertains to somebody else's manifestation. Because you don't know how long they stood or sat by a gate wishing they could be made well. You don't know how many nights they stayed up thinking it was going to be their last night because they were going to end their life. You don't understand how deep the miry clay pit was that God rescued them from. And here's what I understand. When people get free and their joy is made full, you're going to see them walk walking, leaping, jumping, and praising because not only does expectation look like something, but freedom looks like something as well because that is the God that we serve. He is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now watch what happens. I love this. One chapter later, Acts 4. 
The religious leaders are so upset about the healing and the freedom that they arrest Peter and John. And they forbid them, watch. They forbid them from even speaking the name Jesus. Oh, you can gather, but you better not sing. Oh, you can gather, but you better not pray. Oh, you can gather, but you better not receive communion. Whatever you do, don't speak that name. <laughs> and Peter and John respond, we must obey God rather than men, for there is only one name under heaven by which men must be saved, and it is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Come on, watch you stand with me as we close. Here's what my gut tells me. My gut tells me we got an entire region of blind, lame, infirmed beggars within a 10, 15, 20 square mile radius of this church. And they're just waiting for a believer operating in an ordinary discipline to be the light, love, and power of God extended to them in the middle of their mess. We serve the God who still interrupts the ordinary margins of our life. And in doing so, causes beauty to come out of normalcy. And if we could learn the art of marrying our passion to our deeply held disciplines, we can see the power of God transform this region like no man can. The Bible tells us in Acts 4, the man had been by the gate for 40 years. Not 40 minutes, not four months, but 40 years. Hasn't it been long enough in the Northwest? Yeah. Haven't you dealt with that sickness long enough? Hasn't that dysfunction tried to follow around your family long enough? I am convinced that we are living in a stand up because Jesus Christ of Nazareth is giving you strength moment for the church of God in the Northwest. And it is the cry of my heart like David when he fought Goliath. Is there not a cause? Is there not a reason to press in? Is there not a reason to believe? Is there not a reason to expect? Is there not a reason to pray? Is there not a reason to press ahead? Is there not a reason to take Seattle? Is there not a reason to expand in Snohomish? Is there not a reason? It's been 40 years, but not a day longer because I serve Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Come on, let's pray. Father, now in the mighty name of Jesus, we ask for your ever-present help in our time of need. God, that you would empower the ordinary moments of our life to display the splendor and sovereign power of who you are. God, today we commit not to be an either-or Christian, but a both-and. I got passion for the mountaintops, but I got discipline for the valley. 
God, would you marry those two virtues within us? That we would be everything you know us to be and nothing that we're not. And God, we're going to give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor, both now and forever. Come on, in Jesus' name, all God's people said amen and amen. Thank you.